Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions of space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker. In this episode, I chat with forward-thinking developer Jacob Loftus, who is founder and CEO of London-based General Projects. Jacob is a cool chap, and I like his vision. We learn how General Projects is reinventing assets to become customer-focused and create long-term value. Jacob tells us the story behind repositioning a 150,000-square-foot asset in central London with space as a service, and then trading that asset for nearly 200 million pounds. We go on to talk about remote work and the role the office will play in the future. Jacob has some advice for investors who want space as a service in their assets, and we find out if he believes social media should play a bigger role in commercial real estate. As always, if you have any questions or feedback on this episode or topics you want covered, hit me up on Twitter at Caleb underscore Parker or email podcast at workbold.co. Before we dive into this punchy episode, here's a very brief message for our sponsor. Drum roll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker. And today I'm joined by creative real estate developer, urban explorer, tech enthusiast, activist Londoner, Jacob Loftus. Jacob is founder and CEO of General Projects, a design-led real estate developer that creates experiential and sustainable buildings designed around the needs of the new economy. With a focus on the changing nature of the home and workplace, General Projects collaborates with architects, designers, creatives, and tech experts to deliver environments that inspire people and connect communities. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Oh, I'm so Rem- glad. Remotely. Remotely. Of course, of course. Well, that's the, the, the new normal, hashtag new normal, as we all hate to say. <laughs> Jacob, I want to kick off this podcast today talking about something a little bit different. I want to start talking about your wardrobe, more specifically, your trainers. I remember the first time I saw you on a panel at a real estate event here in London, and you had, I think, I think you had red trainers on. Do you dress this way to make a statement? I mean, to be honest, I spend 70% of my day running to and from meetings across London. So the trainer thing is, is partially practical to save, to save my feet and get me there a little bit faster. But, you know, we're also a creative business. We, you know, as a company, try not to be fully suited and booted all the time because at the end of the day, I want myself and everyone to be comfortable, you know, and kind of feeling creative in everything we, we do. And I think how you're dressed impacts how you're feeling and, and how you're thinking and also the, the kind of impressions that you that you give to people and you know ultimately we're trying to create buildings that you know are relatable to you know a slightly younger generation and target a, a slightly more you know creative and casual demographic and you know we think it's important that the way we look and feel and operate as a business also also very much reflects that well i know i was chatting with Susan Freeman on the episode we did with her and we're talking about about you because you were recently on her podcast as well property she and I, I was just telling her the first time I saw you on, on this stage I knew you were like my kind of person because uh, when, when I go to these events I'm often in my bold t-shirt or a hoodie or something and it's slightly different than what you're used to in commercial real estate so it's cool that you guys do that is that now you said all of your team members wear trainers is that right it's not a mandatory thing, but I think I would say, yeah, on any given day, probably 80% of them are wearing trainers. 
Now, is there a market for custom branded <laughs> trainers? The general projects trainer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will, I will tell, I will tell you, and hopefully they're not listening because I don't want to get sued for trademark infringement. But there's a there's a, a a sneaker brand called Common Projects, which is a sneaker brand that I've been wearing for a long time, and may or may not have had some influence in the original general projects name. Well, there you go. I'm gonna. So it's all it's all holistic. Who knew? Yeah, I'm, I have to Google Common Projects now. I might buy me a, a couple of pair of these trainers myself. <laughs> well, this is starting out to be a really fun episode. I, I I'm gonna maybe slightly take it into something more serious. Hope we keep the conversation light. On the General Projects website, you say commerce and culture are coming under the control of a new ambitious and radical generation. And obviously, you just said that you're you know catering to a new generation of uh, people in, in office buildings. In your Twitter bio, you say you design buildings for the, quote, new economy. What does this mean to you? So, I mean, I think one of the big theses that we've got and we talk about a lot is 50% of the global workforce as of this year are now, quote, unquote, millennials. Um, by 2025, 75% of the global workforce will be the millennial generation. And whilst that term means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, ultimately, the common denominator amongst all, 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 all millennials is, you know, we've all grown up with, you know, iPhones, social media, technology as, as kind of completely ubiquitous parts of, of our lives. And I think there's a general consensus amongst that generation that actually what what we expect from the workplace, what we expect from the world of work is actually a lot more sophisticated, experiential, service-driven, engaging, exciting than, than perhaps what, what generations of the past used to expect from the workplace. If you think about what the traditional office model looked like in the 80s, 90s, even early 2000s, businesses were very hierarchical, the company chose where to locate its office based on where what was most convenient for the CEO and the CEO and the C-suite executives had you know, their own private dining rooms and you know, their own HQ, you know, important private offices and, and everyone else was a, was a bit of an afterthought. Whereas I think in today's economy, actually the opposite is now true. And actually corporates and, and C-suite executives are 100% focused around how do we create environments within our office space that's, that's going to enable us to attract the next generation of, of young talent to want to come and work here? Because in today's world, that next generation of talent who, you know, once upon a time, you know, might have only wanted to work at an investment bank or a law firm can today make more money starting their own business or working for Facebook or Google, you know, or an, you know, or an interesting biotech company all of whom, you know, have much more interesting and exciting work environments than, than the traditional co corporate world. So, you know, for us, that's that's the major theme that we're we're kind of interested in, and, and that we, you know, are trying to build our business around, creating interesting, inspiring, in interesting, inspiring places that are all designed around the end user. You know, in my episode with Ryan Simonetti, the CEO of Convene, he talks about how there's a shift towards the individual, not the company being in control, specific to when and 
where and even how they work. And it's sort of coming along to what you're saying here. He also says remote work is going to make up 25 to 35 percent of the of a company's workforce in the future. And then Savills just came out with a, a survey um, that came back and said 50 percent, over 50 percent of employees have a propensity to work from home two to three days a week. So what sort of what does the future office environment look like if people are going to be working remotely so often? Well, it's, 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 well, pretty tricky thing to answer that. That's, that's the million dollar question at the moment. I do think, um, that, you know, some of these predictions that have come out weeks after the work from home COVID experience has, has begun are, you know, very headline grabbing focus and actually it's it's very difficult for anyone i think to reliably predict exactly how the future is going to play out but i think it's definitely certain that there is no need for everyone to be commuting an hour and a half a day five days a week every day for the rest of their lives and you know the hamster wheel it's as it's as, as, it, as it's often put by people is you know perhaps an, an, an unnecessary thing and this experience has kind of accelerated us to more of a work from home, better, better quality life balance. But I think at the end of the day, the office is essentially important for, you know, enabling companies to create a culture. It's hugely important for people to be able to collaborate uh, and, and work together and come up with creative solutions. I think for young people, the idea of, you know, a career without an office is 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 hugely foreign and massively unappealing. You know, for a young person starting out, actually being around colleagues who you can learn from is, is such a huge huge part of, of of one's career path. So, and you know, and ultimately we're 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 social beings, right? For me, the scariest thing about all of the people predicting the demise of the office is 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 less about the impact it might have on some of our developments because i know we'll find a way to pivot and reinvent and you know do something creative to, to keep our buildings relevant the idea of a society where actually we're all already increasingly disconnected from one another because we spend so much more time on social media than actually being social with each other you know we've all stopped going to the shops because of amazon you know we all stay in at night because we've got netflix and you know all of the streaming services to watch tv it sort of feels like the office was becoming one of the last few kind of holdouts in actually keeping society face to face and you know in person and working together. So I think it would it would it would actually be pretty sad from a you know human standpoint if you know everyone really does basically go you know go remote work and actually we spend all day every day sitting at home working then watching Netflix and ordering stuff on Amazon and getting a deliveries deliveries from Ocado and and that's is that is that going to be the future of life? I hope not. Yeah, I mean, I I, I feel the same way. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big proponent for remote work, but I think it's the keyword's choice. And I think the other keyword is in this whole conversation is is what you said. You know, we're all humans. So the human aspect of what what we need as people, and when it comes to working and being productive, and whether it's in spreadsheets or you know, project work, there's things that we can do in silos alone from anywhere. But when it comes to, like you say, collaborating and, and there's just that feeling that you get when you're face to face with somebody. And, you know, we can all say that in, in, in our industry, it, it's in our, 
you know, our self-interest to say that people are going to come back to the office and they need to be face to face. But just to, uh, anecdotally and, is, and as, as an example, this past weekend, as coming out of lockdown slightly here in London, uh, for the first time, I was able to meet up with some friends in a face-to-face, still keeping some distance, but in a face-to-face environment versus virtually. And it was, I mean, it, it was <laughs> so much better than connecting on the computer. So I can only imagine, you know, I can only think if we, if we bring that into the workplace, you know, there's certainly going to be a demand for, for the office, but for different reasons in the future, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other interesting thing I think that we, no one has any visibility on, but it's going to be interesting to see. It's obviously for now, everyone is working remotely and therefore every company and every kind of individual is, is making a massive effort to be ensuring that they're communicating properly with their team through you know, messenger apps or video calls or email. Everyone is on these remote work tools all throughout the workday because we're all working from home. It will be interesting to see what happens when 50, 60, 70% of the workforce are back in the office and then there's 20, 30% still, still remote working. And will it be anywhere near as productive for those people working from home when the majority of staff are, are back in the office? Because the guys in the office will be communicating in person, will be having physical meetings, will be having chats around the water cooler, you know, all, all the social dynamics of the workplace. And how will that impact the guys stuck at home doing work from home? Um, when they're not all of a sudden on the same kind of level playing field in terms of, of communication. Yeah, that's a good point. So Jacob, I know General Projects is, has a focus on reinventing assets with character, and you guys do a lot of work with unique assets. I think you have a one-and-a-half-acre bunker in Vauxhall here in London that, you're, that is your biggest project now. Why do you take these unique existing assets and, instead of starting from scratch? Um. There's a few different things. I mean, I, I think generally we really like working with existing buildings, A, because it's the much more sustainable thing to do by just you know, making a decision to retain an existing building and work with, with it compared to knocking it down and starting from scratch. You know, that in itself is probably reducing the carbon footprint of a development by 40, 50%, just keeping the existing frame and, 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 and reusing it. So it's, it's the sustainable thing to do. I also think, you know, all buildings, all existing buildings, whether they're, you know, a beautiful Victorian warehouse, you know, a 1960s monstrosity or a, a 1930s art deco building, or, or, all kind of existing buildings, beautiful or, or, or not, I think all possess some kind of, you know, innate character and all kind of respond to, the neighboring buildings around them in an interesting way. And I think there's a kind of real challenge, I think, with existing buildings to try and work out how you can, you know, how you can solve all the inherent problems that that, that are in them. So, you know, whether the building's got low floor to ceiling heights or doesn't have enough windows or actually the connectivity around the building isn't good enough or it's underlifted, you know, there are always a huge number of constraints and problems anytime you start a project on an existing building. And I think the fun for us is 
figuring out the creative ways in which you can solve those problems and hopefully through your solution almost you know create the best parts of the building by how you fix the biggest problems that you started with and i find that a really a really exciting and and, and creative challenge we, we do love doing new, new developments as well we are working working in manchester on a big new build office complex which doesn't have any have any buildings on the land at the moment which is why we're building new but again there the focus is 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 very much on you know delivering a new benchmark of of, of sustainable architecture okay and go, if we go back to your beginnings one of your first commissions was at here in the city of london it's a 150,000 square foot asset one poultry and then you did a big deal with WeWork. And then shortly after, the asset ended up trading for $183 million to a South Korean real estate group. Did having space-as-a-service footprint with WeWork in the building negatively affect the building valuation, or did it have any effect at all? I think, I mean, one poultry is a great example, just coming back to your previous question on, on, on reinventing existing buildings. Obviously, you know, that, that building, when it was originally developed, was you know, a, a major piece of postmodernist architecture which I think a lot of people in the city of London generally always always thought of as a bit of a, a white elephant. And when the previous tenant, Aviva, left, we were very fortunate to be appointed by uh, the building's owner to come in and, and re- reinvent it for them. And, you know, we saw the opportunity with that building to, you know, call, you know recreate it for what it was rather than trying to create a a conventional city of London corporate office building. You know, we wanted to embrace the postmodernist design that was there at the moment uh, and, and and try and reinvent it as the first creative building in the city. As you say, WeWork came in uh, as our anchor tenant, which was uh, really exciting for us at the time. Um, it's a very unusual building with a big triangular-shaped floor plate and a big atrium in the middle so actually for traditional open plan working it it was a slightly unusual floor plate and actually what was very interesting for us was when we were discussing the potential deal with WeWork how creatively they were able to use every every nook cranny and corner of the floor plate to really create something interesting and deliver really exciting workspace for for their businesses I think in terms of how the WeWork tenancy impacted value, it's always difficult to say, but I think that building traded at a four and three quarter percent cap rate, you know, perhaps a more institutional, you know, business going in there might have might have traded at a slightly lower, lower yield. Difficult to know. I can't say that the South Korean group that bought it were hugely excited or, or or otherwise turned off by by space as a service specifically happening there i think they were very much attracted to the prominence of the building and the fact that it was on top of bank station and, and next to the bank of england interesting historically having space as a service in the building has had zero or a negative impact on the valuation of a building and in recent times that's starting to change but there's no, you know, we talked about this a lot on the podcast. There's no valuation methodology for valuing spaces and service just yet. It, I think it's coming, but it's good. It's good to hear that there was zero impact on 
one poultry. As a developer, do you when you come in and you traded that asset pretty fast? Is that typical? Um, not really. It's we have a pretty varied approach with all of our projects. T- typically, we partner with different institutional investors on on each of our projects. In the case of One Poultry, the building had actually been owned by a very for a very long time by a very large private equity fund called Amon Capital, um, and we were brought in by Amon as the development manager uh, to reinvent the building after Aviva left. So ultimately, uh, it was their it was their building, and once the WeWork deal had completed, they they received a great offer and moved on. Typically speaking, on the majority of our projects, particularly where we're partnered up with pension funds and more long-term institutional capital, we look to hold buildings for for a much longer time horizon. And on a personal level, that's that's my preference as well. I think a significant amount of value is created through the development process, but I also deeply believe that a lot of the value that is created through our approach also happens in the years after development's completed. Because I think the way the ways in which we operate the buildings, the way we try and curate the retail mix to try and bring in really interesting independent businesses, have the right, you know, food and beverage downstairs, create really interesting amenities for the use of the buildings, whether it's basketball courts or yoga studios or, you know, programming a series of interesting talks and lectures. Uh, and the like. I think all of those operational things do really add long-term value. I think at the moment, the traditional valuation process doesn't in any way, shape or form even acknowledge the existence of, of that stuff. But I do think the end user of the building really does value a lot of those things. And so I think long-term the types of buildings that are creating that user experience and providing a much broader set of amenities and and, and functionality for uh, end users in how the building's operated will be the buildings that you know, people want to stay in for the long term. The rents might be able to you know, be grown at a more substantial level over time. And you know, for those who are more concerned perhaps about where does the future of the office lie in light of of work from home. I think those buildings that provide more than just physical space, but actually service experience, amenity, are going to be the ones that businesses choose to stay in over, you know, just bricks and mortar. And I think one of the things that the industry, a lot of the industry hasn't quite yet caught up to is we're no longer, as workspace providers and as office developers, we're no longer just providers of physical space. We actually have to be providing a huge amount more in terms of service and experience um, if, if we want to stay competitive. It's, it's, now, it's now a customer-focused business. It's no longer landlord and tenant, which, as you referenced my, my podcast with Susan, I think I mentioned on that, that yep. the term landlord and tenant is from medieval London. Medieval, medieval England, I find it pretty unbelievable that actually the real estate world has been allowed to carry on with that kind of hostile landlord and tenant mindset for, you know, for, for the last thousand years. That's, that's, that's a pretty 
pretty bold statement there, even using the word hostile. But 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 I like it because I agree. But it, is, with it. but it is hostile. Think think about it. Think about it. It's really simple. Every office building in the UK operates on a leasing model where every five years, this is designed into the system, right? Every five years, you get into a confrontational event called a rent review with, with, with your tenants who are your customers. Every five years, the contract that you sign with them is geared up to get you and them in a room to have a massive argument, then probably instruct lawyers and professionals to argue it out at huge expense. It, think about it. It's so illogical. In what other industry in the world would you sign a 10 or 15 year contract with a counterparty that's set up to encourage you to fall out with them and have a massive argument every five years? If you've got a tenant who's signing a 15 year contract with you in any other business, you're going to treat that tenant like, I'm sorry, you're going to treat that customer like absolute gold. You know, there are customers signing, signing a contract with you to pay you for 15 years, you know, customer service, experience, you know, you'll be on the end of the phone to them anytime they want to, whatever you can to make them happy. Whereas in the real estate industry, someone signs a 15-year contract with you and, you you know, the landlord is literally counting down the days until, you know, that remembers you in five years where you can have a massive argument and try and screw them over. Sharpen you know? your knives, get your boxing gloves on, right? But what, you know, what, why would, you know, it, it seems, counter, you know, it seems completely counterintuitive, you know, in reality, why would you want to behave like that and and you know and and risk getting into a you know a, a, a negative situation with 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 a customer who's paying you a huge amount of money? It just seems an odd way to kind of structure things from the outset. Of course, with any business relationship, sometimes things go wrong. Fair enough. That's 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 life. But I don't see why you would start out a business relationship by putting a kind of adversarial confrontational event in you know in the middle of the contract and that that's kind of how the industry seems to have structured itself which i think is is pretty antiquated and i don't think will will last much longer personally well it's 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 refreshing to have you know someone like yourself um who's coming in and challenging the status quo in the in the real estate industry and and i think if we go back to what we were saying how it's, it's the, the decision making shifting from the company to to the people we're sort of democratizing real estate decisions today, and and with social media, if if you have if you have that big fight between you know landlord and customer, it's not landlord and CFO anymore. It's landlord and, and all of all of the people in the company, and all of those people are on social media, and then they start talking. Then the landlord gets a bad rep, and obviously the valuations can be affected long term there. So I think it's it's interesting that the approach that General Projects is taking, and you know you've got this curation after you develop a project to make sure that the right experience is is continued from delivering the building and you bring in the right uh, experiences and amenities in that into that building so go, going back and if we go back just to reference the we work at one poultry you know I, i'm sure everyone listening is probably thinking like yeah well you know if if would it trade today at the same uh, because of what's going on with we work but if we take if we take we work aside uh, and just look at it from a space as a service footprint perspective. I would, I would, I, th I think personally that yes, it would, because that sort of footprint is what is making that building efficient, but also attractive to the people that have a choice to work there. And so, my question for you, just to follow that up, is, you know, do you expect in in your future projects, do you expect space as a service to play a big part? 
Yeah, I mean, space as a service, I suppose, exists in my head in, in two different ways. If you're if you're a real estate investor or developer, either you're recognizing you know, the big picture theme that businesses want more service, more flexibility, and therefore, you know, you need to be delivering a building to provide the end user with you know, that space as a service op- option, in which case either you as a landlord or a developer leases a building to a WeWork or an office group or a, or a Bold who can deliver space as a service for you as, as your tenant and then sublet it on to other people. Or you choose to get into the actual operating game yourself and either you set up an operating platform so you can deliver space as a service directly to to the end customer, or perhaps you bring in a specialist operator under an operating agreement or management contract, similar to how most hotels are run. Um, I think the conventional real estate world has obviously got their heads around space as a service in the context of we work in the office group, because if you as a landlord rent your building to, to one of those guys, Evaluation world is is very set up to be able to form a view on, you know, what yield a ten or fifteen year lease to a WeWork is worth. And obviously, in the context of WeWork current financial situation, you know, that's probably gone down. I think what what the real estate valuation industry hasn't yet got its head round is how they value buildings that are being operated directly by landlords and building owners as as space as a service products because there in a conventional real estate valuation mindset you've got a building with 50 or 100 small businesses who you know might only be on six month licenses which in conventional valuation terms would suggest you know a much riskier building that would therefore attract a much uh, higher investment yield because the certainty of that income is, is 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 very small. However, I think I would view it, and I suspect you would view it, actually as, as quite a different risk profile, because actually having a, 100 small businesses today who um, are all operating out of the building and enjoying it because they're getting the flexibility in the space is a much more diversified income stream than having the entire building just let to one company in, a, in an economic environment where technology and you know, other big themes are, are changing you know how how profitable and you know how well a lot of these bigger corporations are doing so i think there's a there's a big shift that needs to happen in the in the valuations world for people to recognize that actually space as a service type buildings where you as the owner is are taking the operational risk is actually a core institutional asset it hasn't quite happened yet uh, but I think we're definitely on 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 a path towards that. Yeah, I, th- I think we are. Is the conversation both in the in the development community and in the operators, the right operators are talking to the to the money. The capital markets are starting to open up to this conversation. We go back an episode or two with Ryan Simonetti. He touches on this as well. But uh, we still have a ways to go. And I think as soon as the valuation methodologies are are clear the proliferation of spaces and service across commercial real estate portfolios will, will happen. But you've already started on that. And I know you've got 
your operating space as a service in your Royal Docs development? So we bought, at the end of 2018, we bought a operating uh, business center in the Royal Docs, which we've just finished a, a big refurbishment of. And we've rebranded the center as, as Expressway. It's actually built underneath a, a highway. So it's, it's 350 meters in length underneath a, a, a motorway that takes you to city airports. So it's quite quite unusual space. But there we're fully operating the building. We have 162 uh, different small businesses all working there. Everyone's on a, on a 12-month rolling license. So it's fully space as a service. We've got a full team on site. It's flexible leases. It's amenity driven. So we have a, a huge central coffee shop in the lobby with an event space where we're running interesting programs every week as kind of educational and learning opportunities for the businesses. And that for us has been a really interesting experience getting, you know, jumping into the deep end uh, and operating a building on, on that scale with, with so many different businesses. It's not without its challenges, but we're we're really enjoying it, and it's it's seemingly going really well at the moment. But it will definitely be very interesting to see how, from a, a value standpoint, over the next few years, the valuers view that that building and that proposition are. Because as I said earlier, ultimately, if you want to look at it from a glass half empty perspective, you know you've got 162 businesses who theoretically could all leave in the next six to 12 months. Conversely, if you look at the history of the place, actually the average business who's, who's in the center now has been there for over four years. And our, our average stay is 4.7 years. So in, in, in actual fact, it's, it's far more resilient than it looks on, on the outside. And obviously, at, you know, in, in times of crisis or recession, businesses typically want much more flexibility that's what space as a service ultimately offers. I think what's quite interesting that we found as well over the last few months is that the number of businesses within the business center who grow or shrink is enormous. But what seems to be working incredibly efficiently for us is as they grow or shrink, they just come back to us and say, the business has grown by 30%. We need a bigger unit or actually we're scaling down to save money. We need a smaller unit. We want to stay in the building. Can you find us a, a bigger or smaller unit to, to suit our new needs, which is, which is what we've done. So that's, we see as a really important part of the model is actually having the ability to, you know, to be flexible with your businesses uh, and having a range of different units actually means you can be, um, significantly more accommodating to your existing businesses to ensure they stay for as long as possible. I think I think that's a that's a very good point because let me see if I can get these thoughts out of my head. <laughs> because in the past you didn't have to service and provide an amazing experience or product in commercial real estate because someone was locked in for 15, 20 years. And if we talk about space as a service being just flexibility then then that's a big risky investment because just flexibility doesn't keep customers providing a great experience and great customer service keeps customers flexibility is a part of that and i think when we shift commercial real estate from product to service the service has to be the first and foremost thing people think about and otherwise you know 
they're going to they're going to lose customers because of the flexibility that people have. Now, the other thing is is commercial real estate and, and the people that I've talked to, they, they don't they don't think like these fast growing tech and media companies of today. When 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 their companies are rolling out freemium models and then adding additional features and it's that they think about lifetime value, the LTV of a customer. And lifetime value in commercial real estate is typically tied to a lease term. Whereas if we're providing flexibility, they're not thinking long term. And as you're saying, companies shrink and grow. And if you're providing a great customer experience, then the lifetime value is going to be longer, even if they have flexibility. So I think it's a, I hope I got that out of my head the right way, but that's, that's what no, your, your statement just made me think about. Interesting. Very interesting. So, okay. So at Royal Docks and, you know, you've got this space as a service operation. Uh, with 162 businesses, did you spin up a new business unit to operate this, or are you you partnering with an operator brand? How do you see growing this in, for your business? So, so we're operating that 100 percent on on our own. We didn't we didn't spin off a new brand because ultimately we talked about it for a little while, but ultimately we felt that the location that that building was in and it's unusual nature of actually sitting underneath the highway and the types of businesses that are based there warranted the creation of of its own brand that responded to all of those different factors and i think our feeling is moving forward we, we've just submitted planning a planning application for the restoration of a grade two listed town hall in elephant and castle called the Woolworth town hall um, which will be hopefully starting to develop early next year. There, we're looking to deliver a, a space as a service product again, which will operate ourselves. But similarly to Expressway, we will intend to create our, you know, a specific brand that's focused on that location and you know targets the, the types of businesses that we're hoping to attract to come there. So we think, from our perspective, it's it's really important to have a different brand for each building we're operating in that, that responds to the circumstances and the location where, where we're based. However, we're beginning internally here to expand and grow our expertise and capabilities in terms of how we actually operate the buildings and, and, and deal with all the uh, different management, marketing, sales functions that are required to actually operate a building under under space and service so that's that's how we started and that's how we're intending to continue but you know as with as with number one poultry we work came in to lease that in the past we developed a department an old department store on the mile end road which we partnered with central working to come and operate that building so i think you know certain buildings will, will lend themselves well to us delivering space and service directly others will you know, naturally be better suited to us to uh, partner with, with best-in-class operators, whether whether under a management contract or a lease model. I think it's we're pretty flexible and it's, it's more about assessing individual situations as as they come up and working out what's, what's the best solution for each building on a case-by-case basis. So you're not a one-size-fits-all. You sort of take take it on an asset-by-asset asset basis and, and the business plan of that asset to determine – what model you approach it with. Correct. But I, I think as a, as a business, general projects is the polar opposite of, of one size fits all. I think if you look at every, every project that we're working on, you know, we've got buildings under motorways, we've got bunkers under 
buildings. We just bought a television studio in, in Twickenham. We're building buildings out of wood in Clerkenwell. We're reinventing postmodernist listed buildings in the city. So there's very, very, very uh, little one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter in, in anything that we do. I think actually as a business, our DNA is about trying to find the unusual and, and trying to create things that are you know, unique and special and a, a, a bit more one-off. Mm. And considering, considering what your experience uh, operating Royal Docs Space as a Service and looking at you know, building this expertise in-house, would you recommend this approach with for other landlords and other real estate investors? I think it varies. I think, um, you know, for, for a real estate uh, business that wants to go into the space as a service sector, I think there's got to be a, a clear understanding that that decision is effectively setting up a separate business which you know needs to be operated, managed, and and run with the same degree of you know vigor, enthusiasm, and you know and, and, and investment as as their main business. And I think there are a lot of real estate businesses that probably don't really want to do that. They probably need to identify that they don't really want to become operators and not try and accidentally fall into it because they'll end up creating a, a substandard product that isn't going to be attractive and isn't going to deliver the, the end value to the customer that's going to be needed to make that business as, as make that business a success. Whereas I think there are other real estate businesses that, you know, fully understand that, um, you know, space as a service is going to be a bigger component of, of, of the office world for, for the long term, And therefore it makes, it makes sense to, you know, make the proper investment upfront and build a proper platform. I don't think there's a right and wrong answer. I think, you know, for those that don't want to do it themselves, there are, you know, a growing number of, you know, really high quality operating partners that, you know, they can bring in under a management contract or a lease. I can and think of those, a couple myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, for, for those who want to do it themselves, you know, good luck to them. But, it, you know, they, they should be under, you know, clear understandings that, you know, it's not an easy bolt on it's it's a whole nother business in itself well that's good advice i appreciate you sharing your insights on that i have i have one more question before we move into our quick fire round and it's around social media um i know you're active on social media yourself general projects is active on twitter and instagram do you think social media should play a bigger role in commercial real estate um depends which day of the week you ask the question i probably give a slightly different answer um, I, I personally find social media great um, from the perspective of um, following certain individuals who I think are, you know, very thoughtful, you know, and real innovators in, in the real estate world. So for me, social media is great to kind of give me access to some of the articles and knowledge that they're sharing to help me, you know, grow and develop as a person and for general projects to do the same as a business. You know, she on the other foot, I also think that humanity is spending far too much time staring at their phone and social media doesn't help that. So I, 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 I you know, it's a balance. Balance indeed. Well, that, that think that sets up the first question of our quick fire round nicely. You talk about uh, people who 
help you grow within our industry. Who, who is it that inspires you in commercial real estate? bunch of different people. I think I was probably, I, I think probably what inspired me the most when I was setting out my career was a business called Derwent London, which I'm sure you and most people listening to this, this business, this podcast know well. So I think, you know, they're really the pioneers in my view around, you know, treating office space as a, as a kind of customer focused end user product business. You know, in terms of design, brand, marketing, you know, they were always much more at the design end of the spectrum. So I definitely, you know, took a huge amount of inspiration from uh, things that, that that they do. Anthony Slumbers on the other side of the spectrum, who is, um, I think, in the UK, the leading prop tech guru, who I've known personally for a long time. And, you know, we meet up every once in a while and I'm forever reading his blogs. I think is you know a, an incredibly interesting person. He you know, speaks highly of you as well. Yeah, good to hear. You know, forecasting the future of of, of how real estate's changing. You know, both in terms of space as a service, uh, prop tech, physical technology, and I think that's that's really interesting as well. And then you know there are a huge number of other businesses that you know we look at what they're doing, whether it's architects, designers. Product product businesses, all of all of whom you know definitely are constant sources of inspiration for us. And um, we we like to make a big effort to look outside commercial real estate as well um, to try and find things that that inspire and you know give us new creative ideas that we can bring into the to the built environment. Can you name something specific that outside of commercial real estate that's inspired you? Um, Dieter Rams, who's the industrial designer, who in I'm not sure what area it was, probably the 70s and 80s, designed all of the uh, electronics for the, the company Braun. So all the kind of ultra simplistic calculators and record players, uh, all, all kind of designed around ultra simple lines, clean, crisp, beautiful. Um, you know, we definitely look at a lot of that stuff and take inspiration from, from it, for sure. Okay. And, and what sort of uh, podcast or books or websites uh, do you consume as well? Oh, um, tons. Um, uh, Susan, maybe, maybe Susan, maybe Property She and yourself on, on, on the podcasts. Um, I try and read quite broadly on, on books and not just real estate focused, but, you know, from in the real estate sphere, you know, old masters like, Oliver Marriott's The Property Boom, which is a really interesting book for any young person coming up in the industry. I would recommend it highly. It basically reads like a consolidated estates gazette on what happened in the UK property market from you know the 1920s to the 1970s and kind of the cyclical boom and busts and all the big developers and big developments. Um, there's a really interesting chap called Roger Zagolovich. Um, who's an ex-architect and became a, a residential developer. Uh, he wrote a book called Shouldn't We All Be Developers, which I absolutely love, which is all about how you know smaller sites should be coming forward and how developers should be trying to be much more creative and design-led and thoughtful around the buildings that we're creating, which I, I took a huge amount of inspiration from. And then I love, you know, I try and read a lot of the technology books and, and, and a lot of books generally about business because I feel that actually, you know, the tech business and design world 
particularly autobiographies and you know stories about other interesting businesses give us you know interesting inspiration to think about what what we're doing and you know ultimately what our end customers are thinking and and, and looking for so from a non-work perspective now that spain is uh, is opening up their borders and some other countries are following suit where is your favorite holiday destination I think for me, it would have to be the Amalfi Coast in Italy. Oh, yeah. Um, just ooze, oozes, style, amazing design and charm. So, yeah, lot, lot, lots to be inspired with uh, literally every single turn. Excellent. Well, Jacob, I really appreciate you taking the time coming on and talking about uh, your developments and general projects and the future or the, the way we develop for the new economy. So thank you again, Jacob. I really appreciate it. No, likewise. Thank you so much for for having me. Really enjoyed it. Everyone today, thank you for listening. Please, if you could leave us a review if you like this episode. And until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. You're listening to a podcast company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at PodcastSyndicator.com or Brett at PodcastSyndicator.com to find out more. Thank you for listening and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts.